Okay, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So last week, um, I shared that the greatest question of the human race for the last 5,000 years is, is there life after death? Now, it's a burning question because 250,000 people die a day. That's a lot of people. And whether you realize it or not, like the second coming, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the day or the hour of our death. So death for everyone in this room is imminent. Therefore, is there life beyond the grave? It's also a burning question because the idea of dying is unnatural. I talked about this last week. Uh, I shared the quotable Woody Allen who said he doesn't want to go on and live in immortality through his countrymen. He wants to live in his apartment in New York City. He wants to live on by not dying, and I think we all do. Uh, but today I'm going to answer the second greatest question of the human race. Uh, if, if we are here, and if we're going to live forever, why are we here? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? Someone came up to me last week and said, Pastor Bob, I get it. We're going to heaven. But why are we living through all this? Why is God making us go through this? Why don't we just go to heaven now? Uh, just by way of review, I want to give you the six reasons that I talked about last week that I believe there is absolutely life after death. I'm not going to go into detail. I'll be very brief. Number one, there is no solid evidence there's not life after death. And in that point, I was trying to train you, don't always go for the skeptic's argument. They lay an argument on us and want us to defend, defend, defend. We can turn the tables around and say, well, there's no real solid evidence that there isn't life after death. All you really have is a dead body. Second reason was words like spiritus and anima, the Latin words that mean spirit and soul. And I walked through that whole story about Victoria Sweet working in an almshouse and going back and looking at old medical books where these words were in the vernacular because everybody believed there was software in the midst of all this hardware. There was a little black ball, little black box, ghost in the machine, whatever you want to talk about, that everyone always understood about the human body before science just said, no, we're all material. And then there's the difference between the brain and the mind. I read a lot about this although I can't teach about it because I really don't understand what they're saying. I'm just glad they're smart and they know about it. And I gave you a couple of references, but there's fascinating differences between the brain and the mind. And then I didn't talk a lot about this, but philosophy. Now, follow me on this. So science says today, and, and I don't think I'm misquoting because Stephen Hawking said, science now holds all the answers to life's questions. But not only is that not true, it was never true. That's why there was a university. The whole idea of a university is we would take all the disciplines and that they would interact and we would find meaning. And, and 200 years ago, the queen of all the disciplines was theology. God makes sense of everything else. Uh, Michael Behe, who wrote Darwin's Black Box, he's a molecular biologist, tells us that even within the scientific community, the chemistry department doesn't talk to the physics department. It doesn't talk to the biology department. Science isn't even talking together, let alone political science, etc. Philosophy came about to buttress science. In other words, everyone always understood science can't tell us why we love and feel and make choices. And hence, philosophy gives us great emphasis on that we were significantly made. And, and some philosophy is only in this world, but so many life after this world. The Bible's an easy one, right? I mean, that's kind of a preaching to the choir here. 
Heaven's mentioned 500 times, angels and demons. There's so much about an afterlife and another world where God resides. And John, please listen to this, in Revelation 4 and 5, has a glimpse of the afterlife and of heaven that very few have ever seen. Paul went to the third heaven and said he saw things that he couldn't write down. John now is told to write. Write the things thou hast seen, the things that are, the things that come to pass. Why? Because blessed is everyone who would ever read this book. There's a profound blessing in the book of Revelation. I don't know why people don't read it or preach about it more. And the blessing we're sitting under now is there's life after death. There's proof of heaven. John sees me. John sees you. We'll talk about that a little more when we get into it. And then finally, the greatest proof of life after death is Jesus himself. Andy Stanley said, if a man dies, predicts his death, dies, and is resurrected from the dead, I'll believe anything that man has to say. Jesus said some really important things about heaven. He said, in my Father's house, I love that term, in my Father's house, there are many abiding places. And if there are, I go to prepare a place for you that when I come, second coming, that I might receive you, that where I am, you always be with me. God has a place prepared for us. How about this one? Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we could take a couple of days just on this one, a couple of sermons on this. Uh, Satan rebels in heaven. He's the worship leader, the harps and the timbrels built right into his being. And he has, you know, those seven statements, I will send my throne above God, I'll be like the most high. And he's banished from heaven, and a third of the angels go with him. They become demons. And guess where they go? Earth. So whatever earth was at that time, somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, earth had a fallenness to it. Uh, maybe even before God puts a man and a woman in a garden and they sin because we know Satan's already there. But that's for a whole other time. And then probably what I love the most, Jesus said, in that day, many will come from the east and the west and will gather with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because God is the, a God of the living. He's not a God of the dead. Don't overlook that many will come from the east and the west. John here, the song of the redeemed, Chapter 5, verse 11, says the number of these people was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That was the highest number they knew. It was like saying infinity. And the song they're singing is, you have redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And if you wanted to disprove the Bible, you could use that very verse written 2,000 years ago that said Christianity would be a worldwide religion, which is ridiculous, and today it's still the only worldwide religion. And I showed you that map that most religions are centric to one localized area, even though we're a global civilization. So there's proof of heaven. There's proof of an afterlife. Now, this might surprise you. In our secularized West, 85% of the people still believe heaven's a literal place. It amazes me. There's a lot of curiosity about heaven in the afterlife. Now, the reason I know is you walk in Barnes & Noble, I found at least four bestsellers on heaven. All these people that supposedly died and went there and came back, Paul wasn't allowed to tell, but they are for some reason. But there's a lot, it tells me there's curiosity. It tells me when we talk to people, maybe we should start there. Hey, do you ever think of heaven? Do you ever, you ever wonder what it's going to be like? Uh, a lot of Christians wonder. A lot of Christians don't even look at this, have a lot of questions. So I jot, jotted down my top 10 questions about what will heaven be like just sitting at my desk. Uh, the first one I always hear is, Will we spend time in heaven or are we going to move somewhere else? 
And people are a little worried that we're just going to float around on a cloud. Another question is, will I still be me? I think what they're saying is, what will I look like? Will I look like Bradley Cooper or Giselle or six-pack abs and jet black hair? You know, uh, I'm hoping for a little bit of an upgrade. I don't know about you. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, another question is, will there be time in heaven? This is a great question. Will there be the capacity to sin? I think people ask this one because, again, Lucifer, as I mentioned, fell and he was in heaven. Will there be time in heaven? Everybody wants to know will we see our loved ones in heaven. Now, people ask, will there be animals in heaven? I think what they're saying is, will my animals, my pets be there? That's somehow that always goes to the top of the list. And then there's this fill in the blank one, right? Will blank be in heaven? And it's all the things we like here, like coffee and golf and cheesesteaks and those type of things. Uh, a fascinating question I had to ponder is, we know we're going to see God, but what does that mean? Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. Will we see him every day, or, or will it be like the DMV, where we get this ungodly number, and we have to wait in a long line with millions of people? Uh, fascinating question. And then the one that tops all the list is, will I be married in heaven? And I think the question is, do you want to be married in heaven? <laughs> Don't answer that if your spouse is here. So the answers are no, yes, maybe, no, no, yes, 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 no. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into all those things. I'll sprinkle some things through this. Look, we're, lift, we're looking through a glass dimly. We have a glimpse. That's all we have. And there's enough here to spend two days, and here's why. I want to give you two scriptures today I don't want you to ever forget because it makes life easier. Paul gives us the first one in Philippians 3, verse 20, when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, Jesus Christ. He was looking for the coming of Christ. Here's why we're waiting. Because he will transform our lowly body, that it may be transformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, I can't spend this time expounding on Philippians. Do you feel the power in that verse? Paul is saying that, that, that the culmination of the ages to bring us to our salvation, all that God had done through Christ, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is transforming you and me. I look at this scene in heaven. There's 24 elders. They represent the redeemed, raptured church because the gold crowns, everything they're wearing is from the church age to the overcomers. And they say, you have redeemed us by your blood. Angels aren't redeemed. Um, we're the only ones that are redeemable. By the way, you're in the Bible. You're around this throne. And I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, anytime you walk into a service, what you're looking at is a God who is taking rebels and turn them into worshipers. And, and, and to me, that's what moves me every day. I know so many of your stories, and I never tire of stories. Yesterday I was at a film shoot, and the cameraman was from Vietnam. And we went out for sushi after, and he was telling about his story in Vietnam. And Vietnam means a lot to us, especially if you're my age, because I lived through the Vietnam War. And to see the gospel come to Vietnam, and, and, and this guy shared that he was Buddhist, he was a rebel. He got to California, someone invited him to church. He got saved, he was baptized. And when I hear stories like that, I'm like, God, you're amazing. You've turned rebels into worshipers. 
Some of you tell me the story. You see somebody at Calvary who knew you from the past, and when you see him in the hall, you're like, what are you doing here? And they're like, I don't know, but what are you doing here? You're the last guy I thought would ever be here. Heaven, first of all, is going to have a lot of people. I just gave you the numerology, the, the numbering. And by the way, isn't it funny how everybody in the Bible seems to want to count? You know, you look at the historicity of the Bible. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church. Somebody counted. Even here, John tries to count, and he gives up. It's innumerable. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven. A lot of people you thought weren't going to be there. A lot of people you thought will be there won't be there. There's going to be a lot of people there. It's going to be a glorious day. We are in the transformation process right now. Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, I labor until Christ be formed in you. We are growing day by day. Paul said, I still haven't apprehended that which apprehended me, and I press on for the prize. Paul said, I'm not done. I'm growing in grace every day. I'm growing in glory. Every day we should be growing. Paul said that he looked forward to the culmination of all things. I don't know if you're getting six-pack abs, jet black hair. I don't know if you're getting what you want. I know this. You're going to be fully you one day. And that means a lot. Because right now we have this emotional world. We have, we have physicality. We have all these things going on. We have faith and we have doubt. And one day around this throne, transformation will be complete. Guilt and shame will be gone. You will be your fullest self you've ever been. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And there's so many promises here. Now, will you still be you? Yes. Jesus was still Jesus after the resurrection. He could walk through doors and such, which I'm, that's going to be neat, right? Some little effects like that. But they knew it was him, and he ate with them. And uh, Jesus told a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And, you know, the rich man remembered all his brothers. We're going to have memory and, and all those good things. Uh, will we sin or have that capacity in heaven? The answer is no. And, and I want you to look at it this way. Jesus had no capacity to sin. You have to understand that. He was not born of Adam. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He did not have our nature. Now, he could feel the power of temptation. Luke 4, in the wilderness, Garden of Gethsemane. But don't think for a minute Jesus could have ever sinned. I know this is a little out there. Uh, he, he did not have our nature. Here's what you and I are battling with, though we're in process. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Anybody realize that's still going on? The flesh wants to be pampered. The world is enticing you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And there's a devil. The Bible says he goes like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And his primary method is the fiery darts of his lies. Lies to you every day. You're not worthy. You're not good looking. You're not able. God doesn't even love you. And we're in this constant battle, right? Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. Things I do, I don't want to do. A wretched man that I am. And so, so we're in this process, but one day we'll be released. And here's the idea. The day you accepted Christ, you wanted nothing to do with sin. But there is still that old man lurking that Paul talks about. Still can be engaged. We're still enticed. But in that day, we as bond slaves will have no capacity for sin. Now, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. This is important. When we take Bible trips to Greece, we go to Philippi. As soon as we get there, we go to a Greek column, the ruins, uh, to point out one verse, Acts 16, 22, 
where it says Paul came to Philippi, a Roman colony. And we point out to the people, look, this is a Greek column with Roman letters. Because retired military officers moved to Philippi because it was cheaper to live than Rome. And though Rome was their home, they had all the comforts of Rome there, but they still were citizens of Rome. That's where they desired to be. That's what they called home. Paul's using a metaphor saying, it's the same for you and it's the same for me. We're on this colony right now. We got work to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now there's a lot in the Bible about living quiet and peaceable lives and we should pray for kings and such and so forth and we need to work and pay our taxes, but by and large, we're here to be preservative. We're here to be a light for the gospel and the glory of Christ. But we're also called to never fall in love with the things of this world. And it's a challenge, especially in a prosperous country like the United States. Now, I like earth, right? I, I like football. I like my wife. I like my kids. I, I like a lot of what we do on earth. So every once in a while, God has to remind me this isn't home. In a church our size, we hear somebody has cancer almost every week. When we do hospital visits, I'm reminded. When I watch the news, I'm reminded. And I was reminded this week, my email got hacked. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I got an email from a guy in Germany who said, I'm from Germany, I hacked into your email, and I know your password, and right on the screen, there was my password. You know how freaky that is? See your password on the screen? And right away, your mind's like, oh my gosh, all my bills and finances and stuff. And then he said, if you don't send $3,000 to Bitcoin, I'm sending pornographic pictures to all your contacts, which is all you guys, by the way, because I write that e-news. <laughs> and this is right in the midst of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, we're a week before the 25th anniversary, and all you guys are going to get pornographic pictures. So my heart's beating out of my chest. The next day I come in here and John Riley puts me on a double verification. That's where if anybody goes in my email, I get a text, unless you have this code, you're not getting it. Whew, I can rest easy. Saturday night, I'm preparing for Sunday. I get an email from this guy. He goes, now you can tell I really know your email because here's your password and look up, I just emailed you from your own email and I looked up and it was Bob Gaglione to Bob Gaglione. So I called John Riley. And John said, Bob, he's bluffing. Unless it's in your scent box, you're fine. So I'm like, okay, cool. Go to church, do church. Had to go to Sandy Cove. I'm at a retreat. And I heard John's voice in my mind. Uh, unless it's in your scent box, um, he's bluffing. And I looked at my scent box, and it was there. And my heart, boom, boom, boom. Took till Wednesday to clear this thing up. And... I can tell you, I felt the evil in this. I really did. I don't know if you ever experienced this. Uh, I did all kinds of research. I found out they have like ships in the ocean where all these hackers are. It's crazy. And I was reminded that the love of money is still the root of all evil. And that people get up and do this every day and this is a lost world. Now we're here to redeem this world, but it's only a colony that we're on. Paul said, I beseech you as pilgrims. He uses the word sojourners and strangers. Uh, my favorite word is when he calls us aliens. I'll bet you when you became a Christian, that's the way people looked at you, like you were an alien. Or if you ever told them what you really believe, they think you're an alien. I remember when one of my daughters at 18 had to go to the doctor and 
she was going through something, so they always give women a pregnancy test because that rules a lot of things out. And they asked her, was she sexually active? And she said, no. And I'm literally in the room, and they argued for like 10 minutes. He was vehement that she had to be sexually active. Because in this culture, if you're not sexually active at 18, you're an alien, okay? And if you go to church and pray, you're an alien. And, you know, we could go on and on. And I think what Paul's saying is, every once in a while, we need to gaze into heaven, and we need to realize this is just a colony. Hold these things loosely. And here's the other one, Colossians 3, 1, 4. Paul said, if you were then raised with Christ, he's using the metaphor of baptism, seek the things that are above, and then he tells us where it is, the right hand of God, heaven, set your mind on things above, set your mind on heavenly things, not on the earth, and when Christ your life appears, second coming, then you will appear with him in glory. When John wrote the Revelation, he was 90 years old. He's writing in 95 AD, he's writing the last book of the Bible. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem's become a pagan Roman city. And Christians are being persecuted under the heel of Rome. And this man who was to fish for men is probably wobbling in his mind. And he's caught up to heaven. And he sees this picture. And he sees what we need to see. He needs to see that God's on the throne. John, don't worry about it. It looks bad now. But John, one day there's going to be crosses in Rome and there's going to be tourists in Jerusalem. It's going to work out, John. This is going to cover the earth. And for you and me, I, I think five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, we need to get heavenly minded. And we need to realize it's not kings and emperors and presidents and power brokers. There is a God on the throne and the judge of all the earth will do right. And that's what Revelation's about. And John looks at the scene. And I think there's a great comfort, and I think it softens the blow to this life. In hard times, difficult times, even in good times, to know that there is something greater coming. There is something we can look forward to. There's one eye on eternity. It makes life easier. Now, people want to know, what will we do in heaven? Uh, the Far Side cartoon I showed you last week. You know, a guy's in heaven, and you know, can I have a magazine? This looks really boring up here. And a lot of people have a fear because in Revelation 4 and 5, we see the throne of God. And there's 24 elders, and it looks like an endless worship service. And I told you last week, heaven's not going to be boring because God's not boring. But I want to read these two verses again, verse 6 and 7. It says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. Now, a lot of Bibles say they're angels. They're not. The Greek is zoon, which always means an animal or a creature like an animal. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not uh, stop day and night saying, holy, holy, holy. And you read the rest of Revelation. I'm telling you, <laughs> heaven's going to be all that. For those of you who like Lord of the Rings and sci-fi, uh, this is the kind of stuff we're going to see. A whole new world. Creatures with eyes in the back of their heads and wings. It's, I mean, what God has prepared hasn't entered the mind of man, nor can we comprehend it. It's going to be amazing. And by the way, we are not going to sing for all of eternity. 
This is a worship service. It's a very important worship service. The church has been raptured into heaven. The redeemed church is there. They're worshiping for a reason. God's about to judge the earth. They will not stay here forever. I think singing is very important. It's a big part of our service. Do you know why? It's a spiritual discipline. The reason it's a spiritual discipline is some of you don't like doing it. Just like when you go to pray, that's a little hard, so is fasting, so is singing. You come in, you're up Saturday night, you don't like the way the week was, you don't wanna sing, but singing's good for you. Repetition, we repeat things, it gets in our spirit. Um, this is a worship service. Now, worship isn't singing. Is everybody clear on that? People are like, oh my gosh, I gotta get into service. I'm gonna miss the worship. Your whole life is worship, you didn't miss anything. Romans 12, right? Put yourself up on an altar. That's your living sacrifice. That's your reasonable service. That's your life is worship. What we did for the first 25 minutes this morning is we sang. Beautiful thing. We sing. We sing together. It's a spiritual discipline. The word worship comes from the Greek prosecuno. And look at this imagery. To turn and kiss. Think of that imagery. To turn and kiss. Remember when Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon was curious about Jesus, invites him to the house, and a woman comes in, a woman of ill repute. Simon now thinks Jesus can't be who he is because this woman would never be allowed in, in this room with them. And what does the woman do? She breaks this bottle of ointment. She begins to kiss Jesus' feet, and her tears, she's wiping his feet with her hair. It's scandalous. Kissing his feet, that was worship. The alabaster box was either to draw and entice men in, it was her dowry, it was worth a year's wage. It cost something. Singing doesn't cost us a lot, guys. Making decisions daily to seek first the kingdom of God will cost us. There's a story about a missionary who went to a church. And he said, people... When I was young, someone who was a missionary took an offering. He said, I was eight years old, I went in my pocket, I had $5, $5 to a little kid was everything. And he said, I put it in the offering, and he said, today, I'm a multi-millionaire. And somebody in the back yelled, do it again. <laughs> See, that's worship, right? to turn and kiss. And, and how about Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss? Very interesting. But this question, why are we here? What, what is the purpose? Why has God left us here? Why doesn't he take us to heaven? Um, it's a very interesting question, and I think the answer is in verse 11 of chapter four. You are worthy, O Lord. By the way, this is you and me saying this to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, science will tell you that you're here because a thousand things that were improbable went right, and man, you're here. Like a windstorm blew through a junkyard and built a 747, and that's you, and man, you're here. And enjoy your time, because when it's over, it's over. Okay, there's really no meaning or purpose. Uh, the Bible says something different, and we see it right here. 
But the thing I like about right here is you're saying it. I'm saying it. In other words, around this throne are people who get it finally. Got it, now I know why. That house I was raised in, those parents you gave me, the abuse I went through, the mental challenges I had, the physical problems I had, the things that went wrong in life, God, I get it. I get it, God, you're the potter and I'm the clay and I was created. And God, I get it, I really do. See, that's what I think's gonna happen. I think those questions will be asked, answered. Blaise Pascal, who has given or formulated maybe the greatest argument for the existence of God, said that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. They will never take the least step but to this one object or goal, happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Pascal argued we do everything for selfish ambition, we do everything for happiness. Man is looking for purpose. He's looking in all the wrong places, Solomon told us that. He's looking at pleasure, and he's looking at money and relationships. The Bible's full of these things. He's looking within himself, out of himself. Uh, man's looking everywhere, it's a sign there has to be purpose. And here we see that God created us for a reason. Now, Paul uses that analogy, I already talked about the potter and the clay. The clay can't say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? When Mike Rizel's here at Potterfield Ministries, he, he's building that beautiful vase, and then he cuts it, and everybody goes, ooh. And he said, well, I was always building a bowl. The potter knows what he's doing. I always had you in mind. See? God always had you in mind. He didn't want you to be Giselle or Bradley Cooper. He wanted you to be you. And he gave you gifts, and he gave you talents, and he designed you. And, and only in this day, well, I think we'll ever get there. Because until that day, we're going to doubt. Until that day, we're going to wonder, and we're going to play the what-if game. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because God made us self-determined. That means we have free will. So even though God made us a certain way, we can choose for God or against God. True love demands a choice. We're not automatons. We're made in the image of God, and we're given a choice. And so God has given us this choice to serve him or not serve him. But this is where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, said, I only do the things the Father tells me to do. I only say the things the Father wills me to do. In Gethsemane, he sweated great drops of blood and said, not my will, but thine be done. And you know what I've discovered in 35 years walking with Christ? Whenever I seek first the kingdom of God, and whenever I ask God his will, and I walk in it, things seem to go well. Right? Sometimes the choices are difficult. Sometimes there's still fear and anguish. But things tend to go well in my spirit. It's only when I'm on this track or what I want and how I think things should go where everything seems to start going sideways. And I think for you and me, it's almost like we're telling the potter, go ahead and shape me. Go ahead and mold me. God, I know your discipline isn't great in its time, but it produces the perfect fruit of righteousness. Can I show you guys one last thing? I'm going to show you anyway, so. 
Let's go back to that song one more time, chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. We're the only ones that have been redeemed. By your blood out of every tribe, people, nation, everybody's covered, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we will reign on the earth. John said he looked, and they sang a new song. You know, I've been sitting with that for a couple weeks now. They sang a new song. Now, listen, I get the theology, right? The new song is we're saved by grace. It's not the law. Uh, the prophets didn't understand the grace that was to come. Neither do the angels. Listen, theologically, I get it. The new song is we are saved by grace through faith. I get it. But I couldn't get away from this idea of a new song. Um... I'm always amazed at people who are living life like way back here. Like wasn't the Jesus movement amazing? And you know, somebody got healed 25 years ago or gosh, we went to this church 30 years ago and you should have seen it. Or you know, my kids when they were 10 years old was the happiest point of my life. Now we're all prone to that, right? And Jeremiah says you should walk the old path. You know, memory's a good thing. And we all get stuck a little in, in that, right? But it, it really concerns me when most of your stories and most of your experiences are back there. Because the last time I checked, God gives new wine and new song and new horizons. And the good old days aren't yesterday. These are the good old days. I say it all the time. These are the only days we have. And, and for some of us, and I include myself, I think some of our prayers should be, God, give me a new song. God, give me a new song. And you know what? It might not happen at lunchtime today, and it might not happen five days from now, and it might be nine months from now. But I think God can give you a new song. And I look at the last 50 or 60 years, and there's been this explosion of worship music. We, we sang hymns from, from the 17 and 1800s for years, and all of a sudden there's this Worship explosion. Calvary Chapel was part of it. Chuck Smith, his church, they sang hymns in the morning, but hippies came at night in bare feet and they smelled and, you know, they smoked joints before the service. They were smoking cigarettes after the service. Don't get any ideas. Um, and they would come back at night and they had wrote these folk songs because Bob Dylan and Judy Collins and Joan Baez were, were popular folk artists at the time. And that became As the Deer Panted After the Waters and some of the early Maranatha songs. And then, and then we moved into the Vineyard, which was an offshoot of Calvary, and then Hillsong. And today we have Bethel and uh, the great songs out of the black churches. And, and I look at these movements and I think the reason there was a new song is there was something to sing about. Because God was doing something. When God's not doing anything, there was nothing new to sing about. Some of us need to pray, God, would you give me a new song to sing. God, I'm stuck. I'm tired. And your propensity will be to criticize. Your propensity will be to look across the aisle at somebody else and think they have a better life. No, God, give me a new song to sing. One last thing, and we'll be done with heaven. We'll get back to earth next week. Chapter 7 Verse 13, one of the elders answered and said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? There's a new arrival in heaven. 
And I said to him, sir, you know, these came out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night. And verse 16 says, they shall neither hunger nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You probably know that verse. You just didn't know it was in the book of Revelation. For a lot of people on our planet, the fact that they'll hunger and thirst no more is an amazing promise, but it's not our promise. We have way more than we need. And I know John's talking about something deeper here. He's talking about a spiritual hunger and thirst. Because remember the woman at the well, Jesus said, if you receive what I give to you, you'll never even come back to this well again. And she was confused. She thought it was water. He said, no, I'm going to give you living water. It'll come out of your being. And then John, the writer here, said on the last day, the great day of the feast, he said, if any man come unto me, in the midst of all that religion, if any man come unto me, I will give him living water and he'll never thirst again. I think what's going to make heaven, heaven, is desire will be gone. See, right now we're just full of desire. We have all these desires. I was at a house concert and this woman was talking about her cousin who had Down syndrome, who died when he was 43 years old. And people said, oh my gosh, when you get to heaven, you'll see him the way he was always meant to be. And she said, probably. She said, but you know what? I loved him so much and cared for him so much, I wouldn't even mind seeing him the way he was. She saw beauty in that. But whatever this means, it means desire will be gone. Longing, hungering for things to be right. Some things are, are no in this life. Some things will never change. Paul prayed three times that the thorn would be removed. It never was. Jerusalem was sacked. Bad things happened. There's a God on the throne. And one day our desires will be gone. They'll be pure. And every tear will be washed away. We have to end with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, what if this present day were the world's last night? In other words, what if October 14th, 2018, was the last day we'd ever see? What if Christ came tonight? Lewis said, what's important is not that we should always fear or hope about the end, don't sensationalize it, but that we should always remember and take it into account. An analogy might help here. A man of 70 need not always be feeling or talking about his approaching death, but a wise man of 70 should always take it into account. He would be foolish to embark on schemes which presuppose 20 more years of life. He would be criminally foolish not to make, indeed not to have long since, his will. Now, what death is to each man, the second coming is to the entire human race. We all believe, I suppose, that a man should sit loose to his own individual life, should remember how short, precarious, temporary, and provisional a thing it is, should never give his all or his heart to anything which will end when this life ends. What modern Christians find it harder to remember is that the whole life of humanity in this world is precarious, temporary, 
and provisional. I think what Lewis was saying is, we have to be here, we have to make an impact here, but we need to keep one eye on eternity. We need to think on things that are above. We need to look at the brochure for the real destination one day we'll be at. And praise God he's given us, and though we see dimly, the promise of eternal life and the promise that there is a purpose to the life we're living.